Thanks, Joyce. It's, uh, it's so nice to see those of you here. Thank you for being here. I'm such an extrovert that it really helps me to have actual real live humans to talk to. Um, and to those of you um, on the live stream as well, I miss you. I wish I could see your faces too. Um, so yeah, well, as Joyce alluded to, when I was working on this talk, I was stressing out about it to a friend and she said to me, why do you always take these challenging passages? And I thought, yeah, why do I always take these challenging passages? Um, but I think the answer is because I'm super forgetful. Um, for real, my kids call me Dory from the Finding Nemo movie, you know, the memory challenged fish. Um, but I think this kind is more like the childbirth amnesia. Um, you know, when, you know, women forget the pain and trauma of childbirth when they're holding the baby and then somehow they get pregnant and do it again, you know, because they forgot how bad it was. So um, every year I struggle to birth this talk. I read a passage, I read the commentaries, and then I have all these questions that the commentaries didn't answer. So I talk to other people and find other resources. And somewhere in there, I just freak out and I about how hard the process is. And I text all these people to pray for me. And I annoy my home group. And I'm like every week, I'm like, please pray for me. This is so hard. Um, but every year, God is so faithful and um, so good. And he teaches me something new. And he uses me just a little bit for his kingdom. And it's just so beautiful to be a part of his work that I, I forget the pain. Um, and, but I gotta say, this passage was really a tough one for sure. So maybe, maybe next year I will ask for an easier passage. I'll tap out. Um, but I'm gonna break our passage for today up into four sections. And it, I'm just gonna go chronologically through the passage. So it, it might not feel like it flows super well, but just try and keep the big theme of, um, Jesus really just showing us how to live as his followers and um, that he wants us to be humble and that he cares about those who are more vulnerable than we are. Those are sort of themes that will, will continue to come up. Um, all right, so the first section that I'm going to start with is Mark 9, 38 through 40. And I'm just going to go ahead and read it to you from the ESV. God said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So here we see the disciple John telling Jesus that he protected Jesus' copyright. And he wants, like, some cred for that. And Jesus responds by saying, hey, maybe this other person is actually a licensed user. And who made you the gatekeeper anyway? Um, so Jesus really making the point that if a person is doing kingdom work, um, why would they then turn around and malign Christ? And the real issue is the disciples, in, in this case John's, false sense of pride at being insiders with Jesus. It reveals their desire to be in the inner circle. They liked being on the inside and the power and the status that they felt like it gave them. They're really concerned about their position and not the purity of Jesus's name. And I think this is a helpful litmus test for us as well. 
when we're tempted to speak negatively about another Christian group. Before we pass judgment on whether they are truly sanctioned by the Holy Spirit to do kingdom work or not, first ask yourself, are you really concerned with Jesus' kingdom or your own and your own status? Just thinking about how often do we push others down or speak negatively by a group because we feel threatened by them? Do we allow jealousy to make us want to malign another believer who's being used by God because we feel like we're not being used by God? Do we care more about being right or about loving others? And I love this Erwin Enns quote where he says, are we more concerned with winning arguments or winning hearts? So, for example, I remember a debate that we were having in my women's Bible study small group. This was years ago. Um, And it was about predestination. And I was arguing the case that predestination is the biblical view. And it, it might have started to get a little heated. Um, and another woman in our small group kind of calmly, lovingly said, well, maybe the most important thing is that we all believe in Jesus and that he saves us. Okay, to my credit, I did take the hint and I, you know, I backed off. But in my head, I was thinking, can that really be true? Um, I need to convince these women that this is the correct biblical view. Uh, It's obviously right theology, and theology is really important. Okay, insert. I'm going to use Pastor Anthony line. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Theology is important because it teaches us how to act and how to live. Um, And we also should be convinced that the theology that we believe is biblical. But in this circumstance, I was making an idol of being right and instead of loving my sister as well. So as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 2, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So I think this passage is saying, let us be far more eager to maintain the unity of the bond of peace than to be correct, to be right. Let's remember, um, as one commentary said it, that God's purpose in the world is larger than our individual church, our individual community, our denomination. Um, God's kingdom is way bigger than just our experience of it. So when we realize that we're not being inclusive or generous in the way that we think or speak about others, let's stop and, and really repent. Because in this next section, we'll see Jesus takes sin very seriously. So our next section is Mark 9, 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame with two feet than to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What? (laughs) This passage sounds so crazy. Um, Is Jesus saying, like, recommending self-mutilation? What is going on? No. All the commentaries agree emphatically that Jesus is speaking hyperbole here to emphasize his point. He's saying we need to be constantly searching ourselves for sin. We need to examine our hands, what we do, our feet, where we go, our eyes, what we see, to determine if it's leading us toward Jesus or away from him. As Sinclair Ferguson says, Jesus is warning his disciples against the danger of stumbling themselves by their failure to deal with sin. Jesus spoke with great seriousness and concreteness about sin. He does not treat it lightly, nor does he offer cheap and easy remedies. We're faced with two alternatives, kill sin, or it will eventually kill us. I think that even as Christians, we like to play with fire and see how close we can get without getting burned. But Jesus is saying, don't even pick up the match of sin. Melissa Kruger gives this example of a baby tiger. So baby tigers are so cute and, um, you know, inviting, and you can overpower them. So it's tempting to think that you could manage one and have it as a pet, but it will grow up into a wild beast that will destroy you. And I think what Jesus is saying here is don't play with baby tigers. And I don't want us to forget grace in this process. It's not just our willpower versus sin power in our lives. Jesus gave his life for us so that we can conquer sin by his power. And we have the indwelling Holy Spirit as believers to help us in what really is a lifelong battle against sin. So please don't let this passage make you feel like a failure or want to give up, um, but see it as a call to look at our beautiful Savior and to ask him for help in the fight. He is, he's ready and willing I'll give you an example of of how this concept played out in my life recently. So one area of sin that became obvious during the pandemic has been my tendency towards escapism. Um, I would much rather just put off the hard and sad feelings and not deal with them. I just want to sit and be entertained and not have to engage with real life. Um, but I don't, I don't even want to invest in like an actual TV show or series because that's like too emotionally taxing for me. <laughs> so what I would do is watch, um, movie trailers on YouTube <laughs> or like clips of comedy on Facebook for hours. Like <laughs> I would just get sucked in. Um, and I'm not like, I wasn't even in watching a show that I could like intelligently discuss with someone. And, um, there was no communal aspect to this. This was just pure escapism. And, um, you know, obviously not that Facebook or YouTube are inherently sinful, but I knew that this was not good for me when I would sneak off. I would try to hide it from my husband and kids. So I'd like take my earbuds and my phone and just kind of creep to my room. Um, and I realized at one point that I was really looking to these things, um, to soothe me and to help me deal with all the hard, the sad, the frustrating that the pandemic was bringing about in my life. Instead of looking at Jesus, my beloved savior, they were, it's really idols in my life. And so to take Jesus's words here seriously, 
I confessed the hold that this was having on me to my husband. Um, I deleted YouTube and Facebook apps from my phone. Um, and I also texted, you know, my resolution to a friend so she could hold me accountable. Um, and not to say that I haven't watched any movie trailers since or gone on Facebook, um, but I do feel like the grip that it's had on my heart has lessened. Um, I feel like the load is lightened, and I'm, I'm really grateful that the Lord has given me that. Um, so is my point here that we should all give up Facebook? No. My point is that we should constantly be evaluating our lives and asking the Lord to show us our sin, and we should take its removal seriously, do the hard work if necessary, and we should remember that we have a loving Father who just longs to see us turn back to him. I just, I think of the, the father and the prodigal son, just welcome arms, like, I can't, I can't wait to have you back. Um, and as it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we, confess our, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, in our next section, in Mark 10, 1 through 12, we see Pharisees here questioning Jesus once more. So uh, it says, this is, this is Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And he said, as was his, and, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you that commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let man not separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So once again, we have the Pharisees interacting with Jesus, prodding him, questioning him. And here, I think they're really trying to trap him because Mark says they came in order to test him. Some commentators think that they even bring up divorce here specifically because John the Baptist was arrested and eventually killed because he spoke out and condemned Herod for divorcing his first wife in order to marry his brother's wife, Herodias. Maybe they're hoping that they can get Jesus killed too. Whatever their motivation, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus assuming that divorce is acceptable. There were disputes in their camps about why a man could divorce his wife. Some said it was fine for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. She makes a meal he doesn't like. Others said it should be reserved for marital unfaithfulness. So that's really the crux of why they pose this question to Jesus, to settle their debate. But Jesus responds with a question. He asks them, what does the Mosaic law say? And like good scholars, they reply that divorce is permissible, which it is in, De in Deuteronomy. But they're so focused on a way out of marriage that they miss the purpose of marriage. Marriage is not just a social function, but it was instituted by God in creation. Jesus takes them back to Genesis, man and woman, he created them, and to God's purpose in marriage that the two shall become one flesh, and reminded then that God's plan was that no one should separate a man and wife. 
Marriage is a sacred covenant made before God that images his relationship with us as his bride, the church. And it reminds us of God's relentless pursuit of us as his unfaithful people. As Ferguson says, the Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce, but Jesus insisted on talking about marriage. Their primary interest lay in seeing how far they could go and still remain in the letter of the law. Jesus's primary interest was in restoring men to the lifestyle for which they'd been made. When Christ says here that divorce was allowed because your hearts were hardened, it means that God knows that we are imperfect people living in an imperfect world. And he didn't design divorce, but he permits it because of our human fallenness. Sometimes it's useful in order to prevent even greater harm. The Mosaic Law itself was actually designed to protect women who could have been easily just dismissed, sent back to their father's household as tainted, unmarriable, um, but a certificate of divorce gave her an option to remarry. It also protected against men just divorcing and remarrying the same woman to get the dowry again. As Edwards says, Mosaic Law did not encourage divorce, but rather attempted to preserve an equitable ruling in the unfortunate event of divorce. So regardless, in this culture, it was the man who did the divorcing. The Pharisees thought of divorce as a man's right. But Jesus points out that divorce was neither a right nor a privilege, but a consent to man's sinfulness. We see from Jesus that marriage really is a partnership. It's not just a man taking a wife into his household as a possession or property. He says that the two have become one flesh. And Edwards says, Jesus teaches that marriage is not a male-dominated institution, but a new creation of God, to which both husband and wife are equally responsible to practice discipleship in lifelong obedience. But it must have felt pretty radical to those who heard it then, because the disciples are so shocked at Jesus' teaching that they question him further about it later when they're alone with him in verses 10 to 12. And Jesus' response here, it really is so countercultural. And I think we miss it because we get hung up on, on the, you know, are we supposed to remarry after divorce or remain unmarried? But let's just listen. Jesus really protects women and includes them because he levels the playing field. He says his statement both ways for men and for women, for husbands and for wives. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Like that, that's pretty radical. That would have been unheard of for people then to to hear something like this from a rabbi. And I believe that as we think about these verses, we should just remember that God gives so much grace because he knows that we live in a broken world. We're often sinned against. And there are categories of what we would call a biblical reason for divorce that would allow for remarriage without adultery. For example, in the parallel passage to this in Matthew 5:32, it reads, "But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery." So, it seems clear from that passage that sexual unfaithfulness would allow for a biblical divorce. It also seems clear from uh 1 Corinthians 7:12 through 15, that which allows for abandonment by an unbeliever as an allowable reason for divorce. 
So the ideal is for the local church to faithfully evaluate every marriage crisis and be able to wisely determine if it fits these biblical situations or not. And I just want to name this, and I know there are sisters here who have been divorced and who some who have remarried, and I just I really want to make sure that we are not passing judgment on one another. Um, we don't know each other's whole story. We don't always know how hard they fought to save their marriage, if their spouse was unfaithful or abusive or abandoned them, or how the church came in and evaluated this, evaluated the situation. So I really, I, I don't think the point of this passage is to make anyone feel guilty or for us to condemn one another. I think Jesus is using strong language, again, like he did in the preceding verses, to show us that God takes divorce seriously. And it shouldn't be taken lightly, as the men in Jesus' culture were, and, I mean, honestly, as our culture does today. Um, He's saying that although not all marriages can be saved, it's worth the hard work of trying to save a marriage instead of just looking to divorce as an easy out. In our last section here, in Mark 10, 13 through 16, we see Jesus again correcting his disciples and their view of others. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So people were bringing their children to Jesus and asking for his blessing. Um, And Jesus and then the disciples intervene and, you know, thinking they're maybe being protective of Christ. But Jesus is really upset and at the disciples blocking the children and their parents' um, access to himself. And the word indignant here means to arouse anger. So it's a a pretty strong word that Jesus responds to them with. So why does he respond to his disciples so strongly? And I think to answer that, we need to back up just a little bit and address um, the way that children were viewed in the ancient world. So children were not considered cute or innocent in the way that we value them today. They were really irrelevant and had very little social standing. The disciples reveal their prejudice against others they consider beneath Jesus's time. And they're looking at people from their cultural perspective instead of the kingdom perspective. They once again were showing the elitism that we see John talking about in the first, John showing us in the first verses. And they're totally missing the point that Jesus's kingdom is about showing compassion to and defense to the vulnerable, to the helpless, to the weak. So no, mat- no wonder he's so upset with them. Um, they're totally misrepresenting who he is and what he's about. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland speaks of Jesus's heart this way. It is a heart that drew the despised and forsaken to his feet in self-abandoning hope. It is a heart of perfect balance and proportion, never overreacting, never excusing, never lashing out. It is a heart that throbs with desire for the destitute. It is a heart that floods the suffering with the deep solace of shared solidarity in that suffering. It is a heart that is gentle and lowly. 
And here in this passage, we see this heart of Jesus as he takes the time to interact with and bless these, you know, sort of socially low status people and just interact with them. And he also makes this statement that to such belongs the kingdom of God. And it goes even a step further that if you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you won't enter it. So what does that mean? I've, I've often heard it, it meaning just a simple, trusting, childlike faith, um, which is important. But Tim Keller says it's really that kids know their need. They are not afraid to ask you for something, especially if they are hungry. They will ask you over and over and over again. I know this from personal experience. Um, but they also ask expecting to receive. They don't expect you to give them a rock when they ask for a snack. They expect a delicious treat. And little children know their worth in Christ's eyes. They trust him. They expect that he will give them a good gift. And that's what Jesus wants us to be like that. He wants us to come to him and trust that he will come to him knowing our need and trust that he will meet that need. There have been many times during the past 11 months that I have woken up and just felt overwhelmed with anxiety and felt like I did not have strength to face that day. My simple prayer has been, Jesus, be with me. Just please be with me today. And we don't have to come to him having it all together. We don't even have to know what to say. Um, We just have to come as needy people, knowing that he's the only one who can really fully meet our needs. As it says in Psalm 145, 13, the Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. And he has not failed me in that yet. Let's pray together. Lord, we see here that you want us to speak humbly and be united with our brothers and sisters doing the work of your kingdom. Please help us to care more about your work than our own personal status. We want you, we see that you want holiness from us and for us to battle sin that so easily entangles. Help us to run the race marked out for us with perseverance and to turn to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, to give us what we need each day. We see here that marriage is your design and that you pursue us with such amazing love. Please help us to submit to your view of marriage and see the beauty in your plan. We see that you care about the most vulnerable people and want to see them protected and cherished. Lord, please help us care about who you care about and seek their flourishing. Lord, thank you for challenging our views of the world and helping us see that your ways are better. I'm so grateful that you're a loving and faithful father who will never abandon us and that we can trust that you began this good work in us and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.